A word before we get started with today's episode of NTM Talk. While it may go without saying, it's important to remember that all views expressed in this podcast are the opinions based on the experiences of the participants and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have questions related to your own health, please contact your provider. Hello, and welcome to another episode of NTM Talk, where we have in-depth discussions on non-tuberculous mycobacterial lung disease and bronchiectasis. I'm Dr. Colin Swenson. And I'm Dr. Wendy Drummond. And today we're going to discuss the role of aspiration, including esophageal reflux in NTM lung disease and bronchiectasis. Now, in some studies, up to 100% of patients with NTM lung disease were found to have silent reflux with aspiration of gastric contents. And certain NTM organisms seem especially associated with what we're going to call here aspiration syndromes. And that, of course, includes GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, as well as uh, dysphagia-related aspiration or things sort of going down the wrong way. Wendy, I don't know about you, but many of my clinic patients are surprised to hear about the association of reflux with NTM lung disease, often telling me, but I don't have heartburn. Um, Some of them simply don't have heartburn because they're already being treated with an acid-reducing medication, but some of them are just simply unaware that they even have it. Yeah, I would agree. I, and and they're always really shocked and think, well, no, no, this this can't possibly be part of my clinical syndrome, or there's no way that this can be a reason for my underlying bronchiectasis. And I would say, mm-hmm. um, because I really was trying to figure out this out in my own practice um, when when I initially became much more familiar with recognizing that this clinical association um, that. I would say at least 40%. Now, once again, this is more of a straw poll sort of situation. At least 40% of my patients who have reflux, you know, and I'm talking about documented, we see it on, um, you know, in their clinical evaluation, have silent reflux, what we call silent reflux. It's clinically silent because they don't have those typical symptoms of heartburn or that burning in the esophagus, or what we sometimes refer to as water brash, which is that sensation in the back of the throat, or even some patients will have a taste of acid in their mouth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Especially early in the morning when waking up, they may have a sort of sour taste in their mouth. They may belch. Their voice may also be sort of gravelly. They may feel the need to clear the throat a lot when talking. All of those are symptoms, potentially anyway, of reflux. Well, when I have patients who are sitting in clinic, and I I do have some patients who clear their throat more than they cough, and that is Mm. a real red flag for me. Oh, yeah. And it's amazing how often they say, oh, well, it's because of post-nasal drip post-nasal drainage. And then you look in the back of the throat and there's really no post-nasal drainage. There's not a lot of inflammation in the nose or the upper airway. Um, and so that can also be a clue that that what's really going on is, is uh, gastroesophageal reflux. Or what I think a lot of patients are now hearing uh, termed LPR or laryngopharyngeal reflux syndrome. Right. And, and that a lot of times is or many times is diagnosed either by the pulmonologist when they're doing mm-hmm. endoscopy, mm-hmm. bronchoscopy, I'm sorry, bronchoscopy, or even the ENT physicians when they're doing endoscopy and, and can assess that better. Yeah, that's right. 
And so there are a number of different ways that it can be diagnosed. Um, and and I'll, I don't know about you, Wendy, but initially I sent so many of my patients for really sort of sophisticated testing, like esophageal manometry, uh, pH probes, and so forth. But what I was seeing, especially in my NTM patients, is that so many of them had silent reflux. And of course, they were very surprised to learn it, that I really just started treating patients empirically for it. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, I, and I don't, when, and this is thinking back to, you know, episode two in season one, when we talked about bronchiectasis, but, you know, we talked- Gosh, that was a long time it ago. It feels like it. It wasn't even, <laughs> it wasn't even a year ago, but it, I it know, does, not even a year. Well, because COVID is the lost year, I've decided. It's, it's, it's oh, like, gosh. it's the lost yeah. year. It's like, it didn't happen. Um, I feel like we lost, (laughs) I feel like we lost time, but, Mm -hmm. um, if, you know, when, when I'm evaluating a new patient in clinic and specifically really trying to assess risk factors for bronchiectasis, potential, potential secondary disease associations, and actually I have a really nice table and a really nice graph. And one of my bronchiectasis talks, I can see it in my mind when I discuss this, but, Mm. you know, you think about all of the different disease associations with bronchiectasis. And there's, you know, I can't remember the percentage of reflux. I should have looked it up before this talk, but, you know, gastroesophageal reflux disease is a a disease association and potential cause of bronchiectasis. But then there's this big idiopathic category, which is like 50% of patients, I think it it maybe fall into that idiopathic. We don't know why you have bronchiectasis category. And I truly believe that a large chunk or a large percentage of those patients who fall in that idiopathic category probably have silent or undiagnosed reflux or potentially some other pulmonary aspiration syndrome, um, mm-hmm. you know, swallowing mm-hmm. dysfunction and that sort of thing. And so much of it, I, I totally agree. I've, I've noticed the same thing. And I think like most health conditions, chronic health conditions, and, you know, now we're talking about bronchiectasis, is that, you know, when you're younger, when you have a, a really good intact immune system, when you're very physically fit, um, you've got a pretty good reserve capacity. So if you aspirate a little bit, uh, you're not necessarily going to end up with a pneumonia. You're not going to end up clinically even being aware of it. But as we get older, our immune systems change, our ability to clear pathogens as they enter our airway changes and maybe unmasks some of what's been going on for a very long period of time, which of course would be the, the aspiration. Yeah, I completely agree that that you can see changes over time. And some of it, you know, some people develop hiatal hernias as those years go by. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. this, this is certainly the presence of a hiatal hernia, which sometimes is caught on CT imaging. um, Often. Right, right. Um, And that's another thing that really surprises patients to learn when they read the CT report and it says hiatal hernia. Yes. And that to me is like, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yep. or, Red flag, arms. Yep. Yep. So there's different ways that, that that hiatal hernia is identified. And we know that, well, gosh, I mean, especially with those patients with quote unquote silent reflex, that that's the smoking gun right there, probably. Um, mm-hmm, or, you know, mm-hmm. And same with, so, sometimes we'll also see on the CAT scan, just incidentally, a patchless esophagus, what's called a patchless oh, esophagus. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Which, that's just, classic. which just means... Exactly. So it's abnormal sort of widening or, or, or uh, 
openness of the esophagus. Usually on the CAT scan, the esophagus is a little tiny thing. Maybe you can see a little bit of air in it, but if you see a whole lot of air in it and it's very wide, then that's a, a patchless esophagus. And that's that's also a sign of reflux and esophageal dysmotility. I'm so glad that you brought that up because it's something that um, I always pay attention to when I'm reviewing CT scans, when I've got fellows on service with me or residents. You know, mm -hmm. we teach them to review the entire image, right? But I always really point that, that out because the other thing that you can really visualize on the CT scan is if they have air in the esophagus. And so yeah. that can be a clue that that lower esophageal sphincter, LES, if we, if we say LES later, folks, it's because we get lazy and don't want to say lower esophageal sphincter. But if that <laughs> lower esophageal sphincter is relaxed and or paralyzed equal relaxed, there are certain things that we eat or drink that, that can can relax that lower esophageal sphincter, thereby increasing the chance of reflux and subsequent pulmonary aspiration. That's right. The lower esophageal sphincter, the LES, is the is really the the gatekeeper um, to keep the contents of the stomach, uh, including both food. Uh, drink as well as ga just gastric secretions down where they're supposed to be so that they don't come back up and cause problems. And what happens in gastroesophageal reflux uh, is that that lower esophageal sphincter becomes loose or lax. And sometimes that's a genetic thing. Sometimes it's environmental. Sometimes it's age-related. Uh, but that, that really is the mechanism by which the contents of the stomach start to make its way up into the esophagus. Well, this is really important to discuss the pathophysiology of this and just the nuts and bolts and anatomy, because I think some people really struggle with truly understanding, like, well, what is the problem with a little bit of reflux, right? Right, um, right. And it's because from a dynamic standpoint, if the, if the gastric or the liquid contents in your stomach, if that lower esophageal sphincter and that distal part of the esophagus where it transitions to the stomach, if that's relaxed and you're in a, and if you're lying in the supine position, this is really a high risk position. And we'll talk more about this later, especially when we talk about prevention, but It'll and supine means lying, lying on, your on your back. Sorry, everyone. I'm in doctor speak right now for some reason. I just came from the hospital. Um, okay, that'll do it. <laughs> that's the problem. Um, <laughs> but if those liquid contents come all the way up, and um, especially into that thoracic inlet area, you can aspirate that down into your airway. And it's like a third degree sunburn, especially with the gastric oh, yeah. contents. It's yeah. really noxious to the airway. So that's part of what can can facilitate or a cause of that throat clearing, but it's also damaging to those airways. So when we think about those disease associations, especially with bronchiectasis, which is a consequence of some inflammatory insult, this is one classic example of that, that this is an inflammatory insult if I ever thought of one, because the pH um, of the gastric contents is very acidic. So That's right. That's right. And it's not only the gastric content. So there, there's a lot that we don't know about the mechanism by which reflux and aspiration may lead to bronchiectasis and NTM lung disease, but we can certainly talk about what's theorized. And I'm glad you touched on that, Wendy. Most of the theories revolve around damage that certain caustic chemicals in the gastric contents can cause to the airways if it's inhaled, particularly the lower airways, the lo lower bronchi. And this includes, of course, hydrochloric acid, which you just mentioned, Wendy, that causes the pH to be very low and is also great at digesting all kinds of, of foods that we, that we eat. But it also contains pepsin, which is an enzyme in the stomach whose 
only purpose is to break down protein. So you can imagine what that might do to the lung tissue. And it should be mentioned that normal medications for esophageal reflux, a lot of the ones that our patients are on, PPIs, omeprazole, pantoprazole, uh, pepsid, uh, uh, ranitidine, whatever, whatever uh, brand you're on, they don't do a thing to reduce pepsin. And so uh, that's, that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about those secretions making their way up and causing damage to the lower airways. And of course, we haven't even talked about the payload that rides with those secretions. And that's, you know, NTM, it's other organisms as well that usually live in the gut. Well, exactly. And I guess two comments that I would make and follow up to all, all those amazing things you just said <laughs> is that, thank you, you know, when, when <laughs> I, I, rarely, I rarely say them, but thank you for the compliment. Nope. Nope. You say them with, with a, a great deal of frequency, but <laughs> <laughs> um, what I was going to say is, is just what you said is that you have bacteria that live in the gastrointestinal tract. There's bacteria that uh, d- reside in the stomach. Uh, typically, we live with them in a, this very symbiotic way where it's not creating problems until those bacteria get into a place where they should not be. Now, sometimes when we're getting these surveillance sputums, and you know, we had the one about the sputum uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and this is the one about the stomach. Right. Um, this, <laughs> this is the one about the stomach and the esophagus. Um, oh, yeah. Never mind the esophagus. Yeah, but yeah. There, there are- They don't quite have the same ring. <laughs> um, you know- Sometimes we'll get a routine respiratory culture and there will be a, a bacteria that's isolated, like E. coli is is one example that is, you know, a GI pathogen. And I'll have a patient who's clinically completely asymptomatic. So I'm not going to treat that E. coli, but to me, it's a, it's a marker. It's a red flag. Raise my eyebrows. Hmm. How'd that E. coli mm-hmm. get into your airways? <laughs> oh, well, you're probably dynamically aspirating gastric contents into your poor little trachea and your, and your bronchi. And so, um, who've never been exposed to little organisms like E. coli or, you know, um, Enterobacter or some of these other things. Exactly. Exactly. The other point that I wanted to make, so you were talking about, you referenced uh, proton pump inhibitors as well as H2 blockers. And those two medications have different mechanisms of reaction in terms of how they uh, um, control acid in the stomach. But what I did want to say, because you were talking about how it doesn't do anything to address the pepsin, the other thing that's uh, something really important to note about these medications when you you get placed on these medications to treat symptomatic reflux by your physicians and commonly prescribed by your primary care physician is that it doesn't stop the reflux from happening. Nope. It, it functions to, to neutralize the acid production, but the dynamic process of, of still potentially aspirating into the airways is still occurring. And I think this is a really key point because I'm not sure that all physicians explain that to their patients in such a way. I mean, a lot of my patients thought, well, I was started on protonics or omeprazole. And so, so I don't have, so I don't have reflux anymore. Why do, yeah. why, why do you, why are you concerned about me? you know, lying on my stomach at night when I sleep or flat on my back, like I don't have reflex anymore. <laughs> so I, I completely agree. And I'm so glad you mentioned that, Wendy, because I would say up to 90% of my patients who are treated for reflux think that they've been cured. Yes, they do. And it's, With and it's just not, here's, here's a big flashing light insignia sign, whatever you want to call it, uh, that 
uh, if you're on a PPI, uh, it is not, or, or any sort of medication for GERD, it is not going to cure the GERD. There's still going to be reflux. Uh, you're just not going to feel it. Right. And, and we're not saying, you know, Colin and I are not suggesting that there isn't some benefit to this. And this gets us in knee deep into all kinds of dynamics about what it's really doing, about control of bacteria and everything else. But it's it's not going to be as caustic to the airways. It still can be. We talked about pepsin. But um, at least in terms of the acid content, when you do reflux, it may not be as caustic. But the reality is, is we don't want any gastric contents in your airways. <laughs> so uh, Absolutely not. So that always leads to the question of, okay, well, if, if medications aren't going to cure the GERD, what will? Gosh, well, and, and that's, if, if, if you and I could figure I this a, out, a, Colin, this cup. is our rainmaker. I mean, this is like the holy grail <laughs> of gastroenterology research. <laughs> it really, it really is. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be really interested to hear what you tell your patients to do. I have sort of my own GERD lifestyle toolkit that I break out. Um, most of it revolves around, you know, like I said, lifestyle measures, making sure to reduce foods that that really cause worsening relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter. And we can get into all of those different foods and drinks, but the list is extremely long. I recommend that any of you go ahead and, and Google it. Uh, there is really good information out there on uh, the effect of, of different foods and drink on the lower esophageal sphincter. But certainly uh, limiting the, the types of foods and drinks that you consume um, and certainly limiting the time in which you eat, um, particularly before lying down. That's also very important. Yes, I, I, I definitely have a standard um, list of reflex precautions that I do when I educate my patients. Um, I've developed a handout. And you know, it's something that we could put on the website, actually, Colin, if if people wanted to see that, oh, I'm great happy idea. to share it. This is not proprietary information by any stretch of the imagination. No, please, please yeah. use it and um, share it. I Before we get into that, I, I wanted to make a couple of comments about you know, evaluation of this. So, um, you know, number one is part of this is trying to identify this risk factor through clinical history, right? And it's just querying our patients, you know, do you have heartburn? Do you have water brash or that sour taste in the back of your mouth? Um, I also talk to patients about, do you have swallowing difficulty? Or, you know, some people will describe this very slow transit time of liquids down their esophagus. And that can be related to esophageal mm -hmm. dysmotility. And all that means is that, you know, there are there's smooth muscle that lines the esophagus that has to contract to move food and liquids down into the stomach. And if those are not working smoothly together, you can have that sensation of things getting caught or things really taking their time to transit down into the esophagus. And, and we call that dysphagia mm -hmm. or just, you know, some people, they describe it as a swallowing difficulty, but you know, that swallowing mechanism is really um, up higher, right? In that neck area. But some people will describe that as a, as a swallowing difficulty. Ultimately, I still screen a hundred percent of my patients for a pulmonary aspiration syndrome. You were you were mentioning, Colin, earlier that you, you know, in the past and, and probably maybe earlier on in your practice, you were ordering manometry and impedance probes. And I 
I, I agree with you. I, I rarely do that anymore. But one thing I do get on probably almost 100% of my patients is an esophagram. If they, and a lot of patients will show up in my office and they will have had one for whatever reason. And, and mm-hmm. oftentimes they've been to see their pulmonologist or they've already seen a gastroenterologist because they have bronchiectasis perhaps. And I also get a swallow study, um, you know, a tailored barium study where they're in the room with the speech therapist patients swallow different consistencies of liquids, for example, to, to also assess that swallowing mechanism up higher, because that can also be a means mm-hmm, by mm-hmm. which liquids or foods go down. Instead of going into the esophagus, they're dropping down into the airway. And that can be another reason for pulmonary aspiration or introducing things into the airways that should not be there. Yeah. And so if this is sounding complicated, folks, it's because it is. Um, when we talk about aspiration syndrome, it can it can be upper, you know, primarily upper airway related to dysphagia, as as Wendy just talked about. It can be lower esophag uh, lower esophageal sphincter, which of course involves the stomach and the gastric contents. And it can also be esophageal due to esophageal dysmotility, or sometimes you can develop a stricture or some sort of narrowing down at the end of the esophagus. And so there really are a number of mechanisms by which an aspiration syndrome can develop. Yeah. And I, it's pretty unusual every once in a blue moon. I don't even think I've gotten one in the last two years. I will order an impedance probe on a mm-hmm. patient. And and I guess maybe we need to take some time to, to talk about what that study is, but it, it's a 24 hour study. It's much more dynamic way of assessing, um, acid content. Um, and especially, in those patients where it's it's a little more difficult to establish the diagnosis or there's a question or, you know, and sometimes in patients where we think, gosh, this hiatal hernia is, is really an issue. I, I rarely have patients that need to go to surgery for that, but it might be part of that evaluation of, you know, some people have such a profound uh, issue with reflex and aspiration that they do eventually need surgery to help control the infections, the recurrent pulmonary infections they may have, or to to limit progression of bronchiectasis or whatever it is. Yep. Especially if there is a hiatal hernia there too. Exactly. Exactly. And then there there are some patients that um, depending on some of the findings, even on the esophagram, you know, if if there's severe dysmotility or esophago-esophageal reflux, um, you know, a lot of those patients do need to see a gastroenterologist and some and, and some of those patients may need mon- manometry, which is an, another uh, type of evaluation for this, or even upper endoscopy where the gastroenterologist uh, puts a scope down the esophagus and actually needs to go down and take a look, sometimes do biopsies to really see what's happening anatomically and, and uh, superficially. Yeah. And we can get clues that way too from the biopsy. Sometimes the biopsy will show esophagitis, acute, esophagitis inflammation. Uh, you know, it, it can show sometimes dysplasia or changes in the cell type from long-standing reflux or acid exposure. So that can give us some good clues too, even though they may not visually see anything on gross inspection. And I will say that um, with esophageal dysmotility, probably one of the most common causes of that is reflux. 
But one thing I would also comment on, and, and we've talked about this extensively in other episodes, that a lot of our patients um, may have other underlying medical issues, like such as connective tissue disorders, for example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. actually may be associated with esophageal dysmotility and or reflex. And so there may be some other historical clues in the past medical history that might lead us to do additional testing or recognize that there may be that disease association. Oh, yeah. Especially in our patients with Sjogren's or scleroderma, uh, that will definitely affect the esophagus and lead to, uh, to, to reflux. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, again, I'm, I'd be interested to hear what you typically prescribe. I, I also have sort of a, a list of, of things that I ask the patients to do. Um, and, and like I said, limiting the amount or, or um, extending the amount of time between the final meal of the day, so dinner and lying down for sleep, that's, that's one important thing to do. I also ask patients to uh, either if, you know, to invest in a wedge pillow or to elevate the head of their bed, uh, or or potentially if they have the means to uh, purchase an adjustable mat. Adjustable bed, yeah. Yeah. So um, first of all, I I talk about the dietary implications, and um, you know, especially in the first few visits when I'm seeing patients, uh, they can be really overwhelmed by all of these different interventions that were suggesting, right, Colin, because they're getting started on an airway clearance program, or mm-hmm. we may or may not be starting antibiotics for treatment of NTM lung disease or other pulmonary infections. And then there's also this reflex piece, which can require um, lifestyle modification. And that that's really what, what Colin and I are focusing on right now, because as we mentioned before, starting a, a proton pump inhibitor like a meprazole or an H2 blocker like ranitidine, it, it doesn't cure the reflux. And we talked about how it's this dynamic anatomic process that really has to do with, I think, gravity is related, so body positioning, but also how much of how much liquid content you have in your stomach. The more liquids that you have in your stomach, for example, when you go to bed, and if you're going to lie completely flat, that's a really high risk situation. If you think about gravity, a lot of those liquids, especially if you if that lower esophageal sphincter is relaxed and open, mm-hmm. it's just, you're just going to reflex really high, and you you could potentially aspirate all night long. And patients will tell you that they'll wake up. A lot of patients who wake up in the morning and have a lot of throat clearing and cough, it is because they were aspirating overnight. They weren't example. even aware of it. Exactly. That's that's the insidious, and I think this is a really good word for it. That's what's so insidious about this problem. And especially when it's silent, sometimes it's really hard to get patients on on board with, with some of these lifestyle changes. It is, especially when so, you're telling people not to eat or drink within two or three hours of bedtime. A lot of patients look at me like, excuse me, what about ice cream before bed? What about, you know, I take my medications before bed with a with a tall glass of water? Or they keep a glass of water at their bedside or and they the, wake yeah, up and they yeah. chug it. And I'm like, oh, but that's that's got to go. Yeah. Um, or they want to drink their cup of tea at night. So I, I basically counsel patients and I say, look, in my patients with really severe reflux, I, I'll say, please try to limit any food or fluid intake at least three to four hours, two to three hours if it's, you know, it, it just depends. And if they take nighttime medications, 
you know, their QHS medications. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I asked them to try to move it up a little bit or just try to to drink it with the the smallest volume of water that they possibly can Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, so that they don't have a lot of liquids in their stomach when they go to bed. So it, and keeping in mind that it's really liquids that reflex, not solids. Um, But, but the thing is, is that foods can be triggers, right? Not only for the acid, like heartburn component of this, people typically think of spicy food or tomatoes, Mm -hmm. but there are those foods that really um, cause that lower esophageal sphincter to relax. So a big one is alcohol, Mm -hmm. definitely coffee, Mm -hmm. tomatoes, and chocolate. So those are the big four. And you referenced earlier that there's a a list of things, but these are really the big four. And I mentioned this and my patients look at me in like absolute horror. Oh, absolutely. And maybe they don't, (laughs) maybe they don't care about the tomatoes, but they care about the other three. (laughs) The alcohol and the chocolate. Absolutely. No, and I'm not saying so. And I want to be very clear and I'm usually very clear with my, my own patients about this. I'm not telling you that you cannot ever have these things. Mm -hmm. What I am saying is that please don't do it right before you go to bed or even a couple hours before you go to bed. Be a teetotaler. It's it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> In the immortal words of Jimmy yeah, Buffett. Yeah. Um, but let it but but, but let it end <laughs> at, at six o'clock. So you have plenty yeah. of time to to di- to rest and digest before going to bed. You know, um I joke around with some of my patients sometime, but you know the classic example is if you if you go to a later dinner at, at an Italian restaurant, and let's say you have some red wine yeah. and you've got, you have your lasagna and you have tiramisu or chocolate cake. Um, <laughs> and then like a, a cappuccino or something, I tell mm-hmm. them you better, and it depends on the age group of the patient. I'll tell them you better stay up and watch the Gone with the Wind, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Game, <laughs> of, Game of Thrones seasons one through four. I don't know, yeah. Yeah. because you're just going to avidly reflex and aspirate all night long. because you've or, basically... or, or sleep standing up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just sit, sit in that recliner, but don't recline. Yeah. Um, because you've you've hit the the big four that really paralyze that that lower esophageal sphincter for several hours, and so and, um, and not only that the the really fatty foods and meat yes. you know high protein that also delays gastric emptying and so it's kind of a double whammy where that stuff just kind of sits in the in the stomach for a long period of time and the lower esophageal sphincter is wide open. Exactly. So once again, I want to emphasize, I'm not saying you can't ever have these amazing, wonderful foods and beverages, no. but it's no. just timing. Yeah. And, um, you know, you mentioned the adjustable bed. One, one thing that I do tell people or the wedge is the reason for this is we're trying to get you at a, a roughly a 35 to 45 degree angle. Because if there is liquid contents in the stomach, it's going to be far less likely to come high enough to where you're actually going to aspirate. Now, I have some patients who've had impedance probes, and they will be sitting in a vertical position, and they're still avidly aspirating. And a lot of those people with hiatal hernias, they just have to go to surgery. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that that that's really 
the minority. But that's where sleeping um, at a 35 to 45 degree angle comes in. And and I tell my patients, like, I, I actually have to do this myself. Ever since the birth of my second child, I've, I have a hiatal hernia. I have horrific reflux. All of these things, I have to practice what I preach. And, it, and I will say from personal experience, it does take some time to adjust to sleeping in that position. Mm-hmm. Um, oh God, I would love to just, just, what would it be like to sleep flat? I, I don't even know, but anyway, <laughs> um, so just know I, I can relate to this list, dear listeners. Um, it does take some time. The, the other thing is that we, we say to preferentially sleep on your back, not your stomach. Cause that, that's, whoa, that's just a setup for aspirating. Um, and that's when, one of the reasons that we don't put babies at also SIDS, that's a whole different discussion, but um, preferentially sleeping on your back or your left side. And this really just has to do with the anatomy of the stomach and the esophagus. And I, I usually show my patients these pretty little pictures in clinics so that they can visualize better why that is. It seems to me, and I, it seems to me that the vast majority of human beings that I have seen in my clinical practice are right-sided sleepers. And so it does take some time to try to adjust your sleeping position too. Yeah, it does. Or stomach sleepers. And so it takes a while. And and some of our patients may also have obstructive sleep apnea uh, or or just sleep disordered breathing and have been told you have to sleep, you know, don't, whatever you do, don't sleep on your back. You know, put a tennis ball, <laughs> put a tennis ball on your back. You know, sleep on your stomach, sleep on your side. So uh, again, there are sometimes you know competing, competing advice. yeah, com- competing conditions that sometimes get in the way of one another. Um, Wendy, I'm glad you mentioned your own struggles with uh, reflux and the hiatal hernia. You are in good company, my dear. I have a, I have both as well. Um, have had them for a very long time, and so it's I, I know how hard it is to. Uh, put this into practice. It really is. But I, I, I do tell my patients, and this is one of those times where I do, do really relate my personal experience because it takes time, but you will get used to it and it can make an incredible difference. And I have had patients, and I think I've, I've discussed this before in prior episodes. I'm almost a hundred percent sure that I've have. I've had patients who have, you know, isolated NTM from their airways, but it can be other pathogens also, um, that really their only intervention is because we'll identify reflux as a problem or aspiration. And their intervention is implementing these reflux precautions I've mentioned, and it's made a world of difference. And sometimes it's with other, you know, implementing other things at at the same time, like airway clearance. So sometimes it's really hard to parse out like, well, what's really making the difference? And sometimes it's all of the above. But I can tell you from personal experience, it made a huge difference. Yeah. And and I've I've done the same thing and, and have experienced that too, where patients intermittently are positive for MAC or whatever NTM organism we have treated or, or we're considering treatment for. And again, adopting uh, anti-GERD lifestyle measures has really made all the difference. And so um, it, it's it's something that's valuable, can be practiced. It's not a cakewalk. It's not completely easy, but it can be done. The other thing I would comment on is, you know, some patients will have issues with reflux, but 
when we do the swallow study, sometimes we will also identify some type of, of swallowing difficulty, swallow disorder. And it doesn't mean that you've had a stroke and all of a sudden you can't swallow property properly. That's not it at all. Sometimes it's just as we age and, and the swallowing mechanism is a is really complex. There's a, a number of muscles that are involved and nerves. And um, sometimes it's a matter of just having a series of swallowing exercises that you practice over time. And, and I'm not saying that these are necessarily easy and you look really funny when you do them. Um, <laughs> but they, those like blowing bubbles. Yeah, but, and, the, yeah. but it also helps to strengthen the muscles involved in that swallowing mechanism, which also can make a tremendous difference in our patients who may have both issues that are contributing to this. So, um, yeah, I'm, gl I'm glad you mentioned that. There's definitely a role for speech therapists here because there are exercises you can learn to strengthen those muscles of swallow, uh, which, which uh, you know, unfortunately, just like muscles in the rest of the body, they get weak as we get older. They do. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I get a different responses from patients about these things, but I, I typically think of it in the way that, you know, this is something that they actually have control over. And we've talked before and, and in our discussion with Dr. Fred Womble, just about patient's sense of loss of control, um, and, you know, with having chronic illness and, People can take control over this and implement the swallowing exercises or practice the swallowing exercises. They can do the reflex precautions. I think this is a very homeopathic approach. We're not prescribing a medication here that may have potential side effects. This is something that patients can do um, that can make a tremendous amount of difference that they have absolute control over. Well, we hope we have explained everything you ever wanted to know about reflux and aspiration syndromes. You've also probably learned more about Wendy and I than you probably wanted to know. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Remember that if you have any questions about today's episode or any questions about NTM or bronchiectasis or aspiration syndromes for that matter, you can always reach us via our website, ntmtalk.com, where you can also stream our past episodes and leave your comments. While there, you can also find links to helpful resources on NTM and bronchiectasis. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, InsMed Incorporated, for their generous support of this podcast. Well, Wendy, are you going to take us home? Until next time, that's a wrap. You got it. That's a wrap, folks. We look forward to talking to you next week. Until then, be well. <laughs>